If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. The past few weeks, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus' most detailed description of the end times leading to his second coming. Three weeks ago, in coming attractions. We looked at the timeline of events leading to the end, as Jesus described in Matthew 24. And we saw that this is the outline, basically ongoing events of false teachers, disasters, persecutions, and evangelism. Within a couple of trigger events, once the world is reached with the gospel, we then have the abomination of desolation. And then immediately after, in succession, the great tribulation, celestial signs, and then the actual visible second coming of Jesus, the entire world will see him. And then last week, we looked at some additional elements in coming attractions Two, did we miss it? Based on what Jesus said immediately after the main body of the Olivet Discourse. And in particular, we looked at preterism, the idea held by some Christians that the events foretold by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse were actually fulfilled in the first century AD, especially by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in the year AD 70, and kind of we missed it. We found, though, that this idea is untenable because the the main event of these end times, the, the culmination, is Jesus' second coming, visible to all the world, and that did not happen in the first century We're looking for an actual bodily, physical return of Jesus, not a metaphorical one. And the reality is that just did not happen in the first century. Now, there's one more aspect to look at on this topic, which we will do today. And so I present Coming Attractions 3, the Abomination of Desolation. Now, the Abomination of Desolation must indeed be important. After all, as we saw, it is the trigger event for the Great Tribulation. Now, to remind you, this is what Jesus said about it. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and so on. In words, there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world. So he tells us to watch out for this abomination of desolation, which raises the obvious question then, what is the abomination of desolation? Now, how do we start? How do we set about trying to figure out exactly what that is? Well, we note that he says here that it was spoken of by Daniel, the prophet. So we should look to the book of Daniel, no? So who was Daniel? The story of Daniel is told in the book of Daniel, 
one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, 12 chapters long. It's a mix of history and prophecy. Daniel is a Jewish youth who is carried into captivity in Babylon by the king Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He works hard and smart to live godly in this foreign land. And then he makes a name for himself. When God sends Nebuchadnezzar a message in a very puzzling dream, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the interpretation of it, he's got a whole bunch of wise men who are all too ready to interpret the dream for him just as soon as he tells them what the dream is. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you know what? I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. If you really have the power to interpret, prove it to me by telling me what the dream was. Otherwise, you're dead meat. Oh, these guys are really scared, really scared now. But Daniel is different because Daniel is is coming from the true God. and, And God reveals to Daniel what the dream is and then the interpretation. of it. As a result, Daniel then is elevated to a high position in the kingdom And he continues through the years, interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And then later during the reign of acting King Belshazzar, mysterious writing appears on the wall. And Daniel interprets this as foretelling the overthrow of Babylon. And that comes to pass. The Persians take over. Daniel continues to have a high position especially after his enemies conspire to have him thrown in a den of lions and God brings him out safely. Now that's the first six chapters of the book. Most of the last six chapters consist of detailed and sometimes mysterious prophecies. So where's this one? The abomination of desolation. Where is this in the book of Daniel? And what does it mean? There are three places that could qualify. Daniel 9.27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. So it could be there, sort of, not exactly matching it. Then there's this one here in Daniel 11.31. And arms shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily, would be sacrifices, And place there the abomination of desolation. And finally, there's this one in Daniel 12. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So these last two seem very similar. Both of them have the same kind of elements to taking away the daily, setting up something called the abomination of desolation. So what is it? Well, you may recall that according to preterism and the ideas that the prophecies foretold in the Olivet Discourse were all fulfilled in AD 70, how do they explain the abomination of desolation? Well, they say it's the destruction of Jerusalem. That's, that's all there is to it. How do they explain that? Well, one preterist teacher puts it this way. The interpretation of this phrase is not hard to figure out. All we need to do is compare this section with its parallel passage in Luke. Luke, writing to a more Gentile audience, instead of using the term abomination of desolation, says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Luke 21, 20. 
knowing that his Gentile audience would not understand Jesus' Old Testament reference, Luke states it plainly. The abomination of desolation is Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That's the explanation. Does that sound convincing to you? Anybody find that one convincing? Hmm. Or do you find a more procrustean? That's your word of the day. <laughs> Seeking or tending to produce uniformity by forceful or arbitrary methods. In this case, trying to force arbitrarily Jesus' words about the abomination of desolation into a preterist view. It doesn't work. And in fact, the effort further discredits the preterist view, doesn't it? Because there's a couple of obvious problems here. First, and most obvious, you can't just equate abomination of desolation to just any desolation, as Luke speaks of in Luke 21, Jesus speaking. The term desolation occurs dozens of times throughout the, the Bible. Cities are laid waste numerous times, including Jerusalem. So that in itself would not be a sign at all. Abomination of desolation is what the, the expression is. We cannot understand it without having both elements in it. Interestingly, this expression is used only in Daniel, only in those references that I showed you. And it has to mean something quite specific. So this explanation is wrong, and Luke does not state it simply here. State it plainly. Now, there's another problem with this, this approach. Claims that, that the reason Luke doesn't use the word is he's writing to a more Gentile audience who wouldn't understand Jesus' Old Testament reference. The problem here is we don't know, in fact, that Luke was writing to a Gentile audience. We do know that Mark was writing to a Gentile audience. How do we know that? Because Mark has indicators such as this one in Mark 7, 1 to 14, where the Pharisees confront Jesus and the scribes about his disciples not washing their hands before they eat. And Mark describes this event. And then he explains for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Well, if Mark is writing to a Jewish audience, why would he have to tell them this? Jewish audience would know all this. Okay? He's explaining this because his audience doesn't know it, because they are, in fact, not a Jewish audience. Okay? He is writing to Gentiles, specifically the church at Rome. And so because Mark includes indicators like this, we know he's writing to Gentiles. And he says, he records this, Jesus saying this, the abomination of desolation. He does use this expression when writing to his Gentile audiences, obviously expects them to understand it or find out about it. So if this explanation is wrong, what then is the abomination of desolation? It's important to know because Jesus told us to look for that. That would make it important, no? Before I tell you, and before, before we get to that, let's first check on Daniel's prophetic record. Because he does, in fact, make some amazing prophecies about Jesus, and in fact, about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70. He does do that. Let's look at some of this. It's a prophecy from Daniel in chapter 9. Now, pay careful attention here. Daniel writes, Know therefore and understand 
that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, you know, Messiah is the Hebrew original, which we put into Greek as Christ, or English as Christ, until Christ the Prince, there shall be seven heptads and 62 heptads. In your Bible, you'll probably see the word weeks, but the word means a group of seven, either seven days for a week or seven cycle of seven years. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 heptads, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the temple. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, any of these things strike a chord with you already. Perhaps they do. But let's note some things in particular here. He starts out telling us a time reference. He's telling us when this is going to happen. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven heptads and 62 heptads. And then before that, he said, 70 heptads are appointed for your people. So Shavuot, heptad, group of seven, seven days for a week, cycle of seven years. When was this going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem? Yeah, those of you who know your Bible, have been doing your study, you would know. It was when Nehemiah had heard that the Jews who had returned to Israel were in dire straits. Remember that in accordance with the prophecy, when the Persians conquered the Babylonians, they allowed the captive Jews to return. This would have been around 536 BC. They went back, you read about it in the book of Ezra, and they went back and they laid the foundation of the new temple right away. Very enthusiastic, cheering it on. And then as soon as they faced opposition, they stopped. They didn't even finish building the temple. And a lot of time passed before God sent the prophet Haggai to warn them. You can read about this in Haggai in your Bible. And then Ezra led a second group of people going back and he lit a fire under them. And they finally rebuilt the temple. But not the city. The city was still in ruins. The walls were still crumbled stone left over from the Babylonian destruction. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in the Persian capital. He's got a high position. He's cupbearer to the king. What is cupbearer to the king? Brings him his cup, right? Cupbearer. It's not his only job. His other job is he's got to taste it first. In case somebody's trying to poison the king, this is the way the king stays safe. The cupbearer is the one who is his food taster and his drink taster. Highly respected position, high position. So Nehemiah's got the ear of the king. He's in a position to do something. And he hears about the fact that Jerusalem is still in ruins. The walls are still crumbled down. He's got his plans made. He's waiting for the right opportunity to ask the king. One day the king asks him, oh, Daniel, how are you looking so sad? And then Daniel asks him and he says, please issue a decree so that I can go back and rebuild these walls. And the king says, yes, he issues such a degree. So there's the command to restore and build Jerusalem. When did this happen? We know it pretty clearly. We're told the king is Artaxerxes. We know when he was king. This was the year 444 BC. Very lucky year, 444 BC. So 444 BC, we go back to the prophecy Seven heptads and 62 heptads, that's 69. 69 times seven, 483 years. 
But remember that the Jewish year was shorter than our years. It was 360 days long. So in our years, their 483 years is our 476 years. So from 444 BC, go forward 476 years. What year do you think that takes you to? It says seven half times, six two half times until Messiah, the prince. After this period, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. When is this? After 62 heptads from 444, as far as 66 years, AD 33. Daniel prophesies that in the year AD 33, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. He will die vicariously. He will die on behalf of others. And it'll happen in the year AD 33. When was Jesus crucified? Anybody know what year? Let's be specific. It was Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. Isn't that quite incredible? A prophecy about Jesus. About 500 years or so, more than 500 years, in advance, telling the exact year when the Messiah would die on behalf of others. So that's pretty impressive. Now, what happens after that? Let's continue in the prophecy. After this happens, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after the Messiah is being put to death, there's going to be the people of the princes to come. They will destroy the city and the sanctuary while the sanctuary again is the temple. When did that happen? History tells us. It was the year 70. The Jews rose up in rebellion against the Roman overlords. Again, they'd done it before. They would do it again. They did it in the year 66. And in the year 70, the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple there was not one stone left upon another, the temple, by the time they were done. It's done under the command, as you see, of Titus. But this was supposed to be, according to the prophecy, this was supposed to be done by the people of the prince who is to come. Prince, he's supposed to be an heir to the throne. Needs to be the son of the emperor. And Titus wasn't that, was he? Titus wasn't a prince. He wasn't heir to the throne. He was not the son of the emperor Nero. He was the son of Vespasian, who was just one of Nero's army commanders. So, oops, did this one go a little bit wrong? Well, here's the rest of the story. Indeed, the Jews rose up in rebellion in the year 66, and the emperor Nero sent out Vespasian, his army commander, commanding the 5th and 10th legions, to put down the Jewish rebellion. With him was his Vespasian son, Titus, who was commanding the 15th Legion. He was also a general. And there ensued after that four years of bloody fighting before the city and temple were destroyed. But what happened during those four years? In the year 68, and those of you who know Roman history will recognize that date, the campaign in Jerusalem and Israel was interrupted when the news of the death of Nero reached Vespasian. And when Nero died, the Roman Senate proclaimed Galba to be the new emperor, but he was soon assassinated by a fellow called Otto, who then proclaimed himself emperor. Now you have the emperor Otto. Then you have another guy who wants to be king, Vitellius. Vitellius marches his army against Otto, defeats him, Otto commits suicide, and Vitellius is now the emperor. So 68 was known as the year of four emperors. But meanwhile, Vespasian, remember him? Leading the charge against Israel, against Jerusalem. Vespasian's forces in Judah and Egypt proclaimed him to be the emperor. 
he's the rightful emperor, Vespasian. And so Vespasian left the campaign in Israel, left it in the hands of Titus to continue the battle. Titus was now the commander of the forces, still not a prince. Vespasian goes to Rome, his forces defeat Vitellius, and Vespasian is proclaimed emperor by the Senate on December 21st, AD 69. As soon as that happens, Titus, there in Israel, still fighting, immediately becomes a prince. He hadn't been that before. He hadn't been that at the start of the campaign, but he is now. So he was the prince who is to come by the time the city and temple were destroyed. So Daniel's track record on prophecy is looking very, very good here. So now, in light of this background, let's look at what the abomination of desolation means and pay careful attention because obviously Daniel knows what he's talking about. Now, we've seen that the predator explanation which tries to fit the abomination of desolation into the siege and destruction of Jerusalem doesn't work because Jesus did not come back in a way the whole world could see. So where do we go from here? Well, what is the abomination of desolation? Daniel 9.27 doesn't really tell us anything because it, it mentions this abomination is making desolate, but no real details about it to help us understand. So let's look at the other two in detail. And let's look at the parallel passage in Mark. So remember, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. There's, there's some details here. Okay, you, something you can see. It's a visible thing. And it will be standing in the holy place, which is the temple. And in Mark, he says a similar thing. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, again, you can see it standing where it ought not. So another way of saying it, so where it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be in the temple, and it's there. Now we look at Daniel eleven thirty one. So somebody is coming, arms mustered, defile the sanctuary fortress. Again, that's the temple. They defile the temple. They take away the daily and place there the abomination of desolation. And then Daniel 12, 11, from the time that the daily is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, so in both of these, there's the idea that somebody's going to come in, defile the temple by installing something in there. So both references from Jesus and the two references from Daniel all agree on this. It all has to do with some horrible thing being installed in the temple where it should not be. And this prophecy by Daniel, it was spoken in the year 522 BC, was fulfilled in detail. In the year 168 BC, by this time, the Jews were under the command of the Hellenistic Empire, the Seleucids. And the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes decided he was going to forcibly Hellenize the Jews. He was going to destroy Jewish religion. He was going to force everybody to follow the Greek religion. And one of the things he did was put into the temple an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar. So here is an abomination of desolation inside. It was so horrifying to the Jews that they actually rose up in rebellion, the Maccabean revolt, and actually drove out the Hellenists. And later, the Romans did something similar. When they came to control Jerusalem, they made several attempts to put idols into the temple. And the Jews resisted. But after the destruction, after the destruction of the temple in 70, they erected a temple to Jupiter their equivalent of Zeus, on the same spot. So then, 
the most common interpretation and the most common understanding of this sign, the abomination of desolation, it is that it is some sort of pagan god or idol that will be set up in the temple just before the great tribulation and a second coming, which means we don't have to worry, right? It's not imminent, is it? Because if you're going to put an idol, a pagan god into the temple, you need to have a temple, right? Okay. And the temple, there's no temple. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70, and it has not been rebuilt. So that's why the majority of prophecy wants think that there will have to be a third temple. There will be a third temple built before the end, end times. A significant group of Christians and Jews as well, some Jews, who think that what we're going to have is another temple. A third temple built in Jerusalem just before the end. And in point of fact, you know, you can actually participate to make it happen. You can join for free to build the third temple in Jerusalem. There are schools supposedly open to train up the Levitical priesthood so that once that temple's built, they can resume the sacrifices. They're supposedly building up the sacred vessels and the, the vestments for the priests. So everything's ready to go once that temple is built and that third temple will be built in Jerusalem in the year 2020. Oh, wait, no, it wasn't, was it? They could say that in 2020 or 2019, but it doesn't change the fact that they believe there's going to be this third temple built. And when the third temple is built, the Antichrist will come and, and take up residence inside that temple. And that will be the abomination of desolation. Okay, so it's not imminent, guys. You're safe until the temple is built. Okay? We're just waiting for that third temple to be built. And that seems like such a good, good explanation for the abomination of desolation. Except for one thing, one little detail. If we look through the New Testament, we ask ourselves, what is the temple? When Solomon built that temple and he dedicated the temple, the glory of God came and took up residence inside that temple. And when they sunk into their sins, persistent sin for decades and centuries, eventually the glory of God left the temple. It's the first few chapters of the book of Ezekiel. It's just a stone building after that. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. They rebuilt it, but never did the glory of God ever take up residence in that second temple. And they were waiting for that. And then find the glory of God return in the temple, but it was not the stone temple. You see this in John chapter 1 and chapter 2. The glory of God came in the temple. That was the body of Jesus. Remember in John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it. But it was speaking of the temple of his body. That's where the Holy Spirit dwelt. And when he ascended, where does the Holy Spirit dwell now? Within the church, the collective body of Christians. We are the temple. And we see this again and again. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you? It's always plural. Okay? Sometimes you're a Christian saying, oh, see, I'm the temple of God. I got to stay in good shape because I'm the temple of God. It's the whole church. You, plural. Body of Christ. You are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is it in you? Temple of God. Temple of the Holy Spirit. Same thing. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's the temple. That's the only temple we have. That's the only Christian temple, which means it's not a building of stone, which means this idea that we have to wait for a stone temple to be built and to be defiled by the Antichrist in there are going to miss the reality. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 to 4. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, the apostasy comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the abomination of desolation will sit indeed in the temple of God, but it's not a building of stone. If we're looking for a building of stone, we're missing the point. It's going to be inside the church. That's the New Testament temple. That man of sin, when he's in the temple of God, there's somebody in the church. That day, notice this, folks, that day will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first. And I have news for you that you probably already know. It's already happening, folks. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. This is not talking about the world. This is talking about the church. The doctrine is never for the world. It's for the church. And it's already happening, folks. You just have to look at what you're hearing from evangelical scholars and famous pastors and so on. It's already happening, folks. So the abomination of desolation is on its way and is maybe already happening. So be ready. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.